Well, greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be in the house of God. I worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I'm not sure if it was wise for me to attempt to preach this morning, um, but I am going to. By the grace of God, my voice is weak. Still have an issue with a cough, but maybe with the help of some cough drops, I'll make it through here. For a message, I'd invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. chapter 3 verse 1 and following is a message to the church at Sardis. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." So what I'd like to speak about this morning is the title, Why We Identify as Anabaptist. Now maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, what does that have to do with this passage? Because the name or word Anabaptist is not found in this passage of Scripture. Well, that's true. And it does not relate necessarily directly to the term Anabaptist. But there are a few things in this passage, and we could have drawn from probably any of the other messages to the churches as well, but there are a few things in here that do relate to why we identify as Anabaptists. So this morning I will be speaking a bit about history, a bit of a history lesson, as well as why we choose to identify as Anabaptists. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the term Anabaptist and where that is derived from. It's what it literally means is to be re-baptized or baptized again. And it was a term that was uh, used um, of course in in English it's uh, Anna, meaning again, 
a Baptist, rebaptized Anabaptist, but in the German or Swiss, it would have been called a Wiedertaufer. Um, again, baptized, same, same meaning, but a different term. And it was used in Central Europe, essentially, and throughout Europe, eventually, but it was referring to those who made a break from the Roman Catholic Church and later even the Protestant Church and insisted on a believer's baptism. Because in the, in the day there, in what was known as the Holy Roman Empire, where the Roman Catholic Church ruled uh, not only the church, but also in the temporal powers of the state, they ruled. And the Pope was the supreme ruler, and all the uh, bishops and cardinals and so on in their hierarchy. And everyone in the land was expected to be a part of the church. And you, uh, they practiced infant baptism, that as an infant you were to be taken to the local parish, the uh, cathedral or the worship house, and you would be baptized by the priest. As an infant, they would sprinkle water on you. And that uh, affirmed your entrance into the church. Well, this movement that began and became known as the Anabaptist group or the Anabaptist people rejected the concept of infant baptism and rather took up a believer's baptism that those who are truly born again should be baptized and that it would require a certain amount of knowledge and understanding which they said a child, an infant, could not have. So the term Anabaptist became the name for this movement. And one could say that it was a time of revival because it truly was. And it became uh, very widespread in, the, in Central Europe, beginning in Switzerland, throughout uh, Germany, and eventually into the Netherlands and France and, and the surrounding regions, Austria, and eventually down in Greece as well, and, and so on for the next um, hundred years. And today, we still have a, uh, a number of groups today that trace their roots back to that Anabaptist movement. Some of the ones that we would know well are the uh, Mennonites, the Amish, the Hutterites, the uh, Old Colony Mennonites, sometimes known as Russian Mennonites or Old Colony Mennonites, and even in, uh, maybe not all the way back to that place, but the apostolic groups also have roots back there. And, and uh, I believe the German Baptists have at least a peripheral uh, connection there. But why today do we identify as Anabaptists? Let's talk about uh, a name. There is probably, and maybe in all of us, a little um, hesitancy and uncertainty what we want to be identified with or a particular name. And the Anabaptist name may seem strange if you do not understand the history. That is one reason why I'm sharing that this morning is that you can understand a bit of the history and would, and therefore identify with the Anabaptist vision 
And we talk about a name here, as we read in our text here, the church at Sardis. God said, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. And that was a, an indictment against them. They had something that they, they had a name, but what it was supposed to represent was dead, as I understand this passage. And he warns them, saying, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now, That's a warning for us today, too. And a name that we might identify with, including Anabaptist, has to be more than just a name. And that if we identify with this, then we're in, or we're in favor with God. Or I'm somehow assured to be going to heaven. The scripture says that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And that choosing a name refers not to your specific given name, but it refers to the character that you display. What you choose in life that displays what that name represents. And therefore, this term Anabaptist likewise We need to identify with the reasons and the purposes and visions that they had in order for it to have a good name. And so there's, it's much more than just a name. And yet, at the same time, while we understand very clearly that there must be a choosing to identify with what is good and right in identifying with any name, we also realize that there are some who represented in a very negative way. This was true even back in the day, the Anabaptists. Some uh, chose to live in a way that brought great reproach to even this name. Sometimes we might think, well, I would prefer to just be known as a Christian. Well, wonderful. That's, that's uh, I don't think you could find a better name. Christian. Christ-like. We all want to be Christian. We should want to be Christian, and we should want to identify with the name, but wait a minute. There are some people who call themselves Christian that we would be ashamed to associate with. In fact, even the world would be ashamed to associate with some who call themselves Christian. Probably one of the most extreme examples that come to mind is uh, the name Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler saw himself as a Christian. He identified as Christian. And yet, there are few names that are so associated with what is evil and devilish and and abhorrent to the human race than that name. And yet, he claimed that what he was doing and his plan for the Jews was just what the church has done for years, only more efficiently and, and with, uh, with greater success. Well, it is true that some who called themselves Christian prior to Hitler's day, did persecute the Jews. But that is not what Christ taught. That is not what Christ did. And so, all through history, there has been a need, even though we embrace the term Christian, there has been a need to distinguish between what is a true Christian, a real Christian, and one who is not. So let's keep that in mind when we think about identifying with the term Anabaptist, why we call ourselves or identify with Anabaptists. 
If we think about names here, even in these several chapters in Revelation for the seven churches, there was reference made to churches in a certain town. Um, For example, here it says, the church in Sardis. Okay, so we could refer to ourselves as the church in Wellman. But there are other churches who call themselves churches in the city of Wellman. So again, we have a little more specific designation. We are Zion Christian Fellowship. And there's nothing wrong with having a specific name and something that we identify with. But we also need to be sure that we are giving it a good name. We are choosing a good name because the name in itself will not save us from error. As we note here, even in this individual church, God said, I have not found thy works perfect before God. There was nothing wrong with their name. There was nothing wrong with them identifying as Christian. But their works were not perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. And then he says in verse 4, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. So it would be implied that there were those among them who had defiled their garments. And again, it's not speaking of a physical soiling of their clothes. It's talking about a spiritual reality. They had allowed their spiritual garments to be defiled. So looking more closely at the history of the Anabaptist group, I'd like to focus on several key things and to just give a little brief history. The time period was in the 1500s. In 1517, Martin Luther, who became known as the Reformer, he was a priest in the Catholic Church, and he saw that the Catholic Church had fallen into many errors. And he attempted to revive what he thought was a more righteous uh, direction. And he championed the idea of justification by faith. Now that was correct. It was very good in as far as it went. He decided, I believe it was in, um, in 1517, he posted on the Wittenberg cathedral door, a document called the 95 Thesis, in which he listed some of the errors in the Roman Catholic Church that needed to be reformed. And so he became known as a reformer, and he um, actively resisted the Roman uh, Roman Catholic Church and their doctrines and, and their rule, even. In those years, there were a number of other young men, scholars and students at the universities who also began searching the scriptures. They began reading the scriptures for themselves. They were proficient in Latin and Greek and could read the text of the scripture for themselves. Even in a day when that was somewhat discouraged, But they were very enthused about what Martin Luther was doing, and they agreed with much of what he did, but they um, felt that there was more. There was more that should be had in the Christian life and Christian experience. And so they had these public debates in which they would discuss some of these things. One of them that they discussed was the matter of baptism. Baptism. 
And so that, uh, that became a public debate in which these men, along with the church, uh, the Zurich Council, there in Zurich, Switzerland, and Martin Luther and Zwingli were part of that debate. Um, well, I'm not sure about Martin Luther, but Zwingli, uh, being a contemporary of Martin Luther and would have um, embraced a lot of what Martin Luther taught. And in this disputation, some of the men argued that the scripture would teach a believer's baptism. And there was a back and forth. And, and among the more notable things that were said that day in this, in this disputation, when they finally, after a long debate, it was acknowledged by most that this matter of a believer's baptism versus an infant baptism should be a major consideration. And the uh, and I believe it was Zwingli that finally gave a bit of a summary in what his position would be. He, he made the statement that we would let the church council or the, the town council decide on this matter. And one of the men in the disputation stood up and said and refuted that and made a statement along this line that it is not up to the, church, to the town council to decide. The word of God has already decided. And that statement and, and all that it implied was what caused a break between these men and the reformers. And so shortly thereafter, they had a, a secret meeting in which about a dozen men gathered and they baptized each other and thus began the birth of what was known as the Anabaptist movement. Now, that term had been used prior to that. There were other church groups that had... Um, Arisen, but this was a time when they made a clear break with the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformed Church and began what they referred to as the Swiss Brethren. They called themselves Brethren and they practiced a believer's baptism. And the, that movement grew and multiplied rapidly. Now, it was not long before they were hated and despised and hunted and even edicts were made that they should be put to death. Any that was found to have joined themselves to the Anabaptist groups were to be put to death. They would be arrested, thrown into prison, and sentenced to death many times. Sometimes they were banished, uh, many times they were Property was confiscated, and so for the next years, they were hated by both the Catholic Church and the Reformers. Now, that didn't stifle the movement at all. In fact, it seemed to fan the flames, and a revival swept across the land. Many joined themselves to that movement. And there were certain leaders that arose. Um, speaking about Hezekiah being 25 years of age, when he began the reforms there and he took the throne, many of these leaders and men were between the age of 25 and 30. Um, most of them would have died or been martyred sometime before they uh, reached their 35th year of age. Many of them, not, not all of them, but many of them. And so they were hated and hunted, but they established a New Testament church. 
And I'd like to just point out several of the things that became very prominent and why they became such a movement and what they attempted to do in establishing a New Testament church. One of the things that was uppermost was this. Ye must be born again. In their day, to be called a part of the church or to be a church member, you needed to be baptized in your infancy. And if you lived in this certain town, you were a part of this parish and, and you had the priest and, and you were a part of the church. It didn't matter how you lived. It wasn't required that you walk in righteousness or holiness at all. As long as you followed the rules of the church, you were in. In fact, you were under penalty of punishment, civil punishment. You were part of the church. And so when these men who identified as true Christian, Swiss brethren, they insisted that in order to be a part of the true church of God, ye must be born again. You must become a part of God's kingdom as separate and distinct from the kingdom of this world and from just having a name on a church roll. There must have been a change of life, a reformed life. Now they went much farther than the reformers who wanted to reform the church and they said, in essence, they said, well, what the reformers have done is good as far as it went, but it hasn't gone nearly far enough. There must be more. In order to be a part of God's people, there must be a repentance, a reformation of life where an individual is actually changed from the old man to the new. And only then can you truly identify with the people of God and the true church. And so they rejected the false church and adhered to a believer's church that was kept pure and where they were all expected to have a personally transformed life that was in harmony with the word of God. And they would seek the word of God and seek to adhere to that diligently. So the, the one central theme of the Anabaptist movement in a radical departure from what was then understood as Christian or church is that ye must be born again. One of the leaders well, getting a little ahead of the story. Along with that, and we could put several other things underneath this. Um, one of them was baptism. But a second central theme here was to identify with the people of God. I'm running out of room here. Identify with the people of God, and that meant a brotherhood. It also meant separation from the world. 
So as they made a break with the state church, as it was known then, and because there was a, a joining together of church and state, the civil magistrates were also rulers in the church. And that had started way back in the day of Constantine, who was the Roman emperor. And we read about Roman emperors in the scriptures. Paul had to deal with the Roman emperor. He appealed to Caesar and eventually went to Rome. And it's believed that under the emperor Nero, uh, the apostle Paul was put to death. But for several hundred years, as the New Testament church got started, there was always a persecution from the state, which was the Roman emperors, the civil authorities. But Constantine claimed to have converted to Christianity. He made it uh, okay to be a Christian, and he stopped the persecution, at least to some extent, he stopped the persecution of the church and actually favored some churches and, <clears throat> excuse me, he uh, encouraged the building of fine, large church houses. And so cathedrals were built. And it wasn't too many years before a disputation arose. And then, I believe it was Constantine, convened what was called the Council of Nicaea, in which Constantine himself was the moderator and the, uh, the master of the ceremonies there and the, and the, uh, the council. So we often look back at that period in history as a time when, when the church and the world became joined together. And the civil power and the church was joined together. Now there were even from that time, there were those who resisted that and stood outside of that and became marginalized and hated and and there was some in the fringes of the kingdom. There were other, there were churches, whole groups of people that did not go along with that at all. <clears throat> and so you have a time of corruption down through history. <clears throat> Excuse me. So now we come to the 1500s here where the Anabaptists were pushing back against that. And they said that the civil magistrate and the authority is separate from the church. The two should not mix. And they came, uh, they preached the concept of two kingdoms. And you've heard of that term. We've used it frequently even in our day the importance of the two kingdoms. So we need to see clearly that there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. And back in their day, the Anabaptists had to make that a major focus of what they taught and believed because they were brought before kings and councils and were always challenged why they would be um, divisive and why they would um, be traitors to the kingdom, why they would be uh, despisers of the king and, and all of those things. They were, they were accused of operating in treason against the powers that be. Well, they were separating themselves from the world and from that world system and they insisted that the church should not be subject to the jurisdiction of the civil power, and nor should the church be dictating to the civil power how they should be operating. It is two separate kingdoms. Along with that, and very central to that, was the whole concept of the use of the sword. 
and they became known as the defenseless ones who would not take up the sword to defend themselves. And one could put that up as a major point there, but I would, just for the sake of our study this morning, I would put that in the subheading there under identify with the people of God and separated from the world. Even in our modern uh, political scene, and and our concept of what it uh, means to be an American, one thing that is prominently held is that there must be a separation of church and state. And what that means, uh, as it's commonly interpreted, is that the... um, that the state shall make no laws regarding or requiring a religious adherence. That means that you as a citizen in America are not forced against your will to join a church or to observe a particular religion. Now that was actually came out of the philosophy of the Anabaptists. That was not the view of the reformers. They continued the view that the church has the right to force people into the kingdom at the, uh, with the force of the sword, and that heretics should be dealt with with the civil force of law and the sword. The Anabaptists clearly rejected that as they believed that there are two kingdoms. And that as a believer, you must separate yourself from the kingdom of this world and join yourself unto God's kingdom. One of the men that became a strong leader, probably some... 10 or 15 years, I'm I'm forgetting the dates exactly, probably some 10 years after the Swiss Brethren began, there was a Catholic priest by the name of Menno Simons who became converted. Now, the story of his conversion is a bit interesting. He was, as he himself would say, he was a totally godless... um, Yes, he was a priest. He was a priest in the church, but he was without God and without an understanding of godliness, and he was involved in all kinds of wickedness and debauchery, as most of the priests of his day were. But he did have the word of God, and he began to read that and began to see that the life he was living was very different from what the word of God taught. But one of the other things that was happening as this movement was becoming very prominent, there were also some certain sects that veered off, and one of them was a group that gathered in the town of Munster, and they became known as the Munsterites. They were called Anabaptists, but they deviated from the normal beliefs, and they began to focus on establishing God's kingdom in a physical way on the earth. Uh, They were going to help God out and establish his rule and his kingdom on the earth. And so they took to themselves many of the Old Testament principles and thought that they could rule by force. And they used the sword. And the leaders of this movement decided that they have the authority from God to take multiple wives, and so they did that, and it became a stench in the land for their debauchery and their militaristic ways and their determination to set up God's kingdom on the earth. Menno Simon's brother, was involved in this group. And so Menno Simons had much occasion 
to consider what was going on. And he heard reports and he knew firsthand, because of his brother's involvement, what the direction of this movement was taking. And he began to find himself needing to speak out against the errors of this false movement even before he was a believer himself or before he had embraced the truth. He could also see some of these errors. Well, eventually, they, um, the civil authorities came in and, and overtook the town and by force put an end to this, um, the Munsterite rebellion. And truly, it was a rebellion because most of the Anabaptists firmly believed that they should obey the civil magistrates, not create any riot or disturbance or, or to take rule to themselves, but they should be subject to the magistrates in all ways in which it did not directly violate the commandments of the Lord. Such as, for example, the requirement to baptize their infants. They said that's a violation of God's law and the requirement that they be members in this um, church that had all manner of wickedness and vices that were allowed and all manner of drunkenness and reveling and whatever as long as you went to the church and took your communion and everything and, and um, made your penance to the priest then, then you were fine, you were in. And they said, no, that is a violation. We cannot join ourselves to such a group of people who are unholy and unsanctified. So in those things, they resisted what they were ordered to do. And so, of course, they were hated and, and persecuted. Menno Simons did become converted, and he became a powerful leader Powerful in the sense that he had the anointing of God on his life. And he was used much in writing and the defense of the true gospel. And we still have his writings today. And if you read them, you will find that he repeatedly, he would emphasize the requirement that he must be born again. You cannot claim to be a Christian and follow with the ways of the world, going the way the world does with their lying and their deceptions and their thefts and their adulteries and their fornications. You cannot claim to be a member of God's church and indulge in these things. You must be born again. And only a group of born-again believers comprises the true church. And that made him hated. And there was a price on his head. And God delivered him many times from imprisonment and, and even death. So as we think today of identifying with the Anabaptist people, Let's remember what the key things were that they stood for. And as I put them here on the board, there's probably various ways you could, you could write that, and there are certain things you could emphasize, but central among the things that they taught and believed was this one thing, that ye must be born again to enter into the kingdom. And the parallel with that then was that you must then be baptized. And you also have to be identified with the people of God. The Swiss brethren, they called themselves brethren, and they had a strong brotherhood. They believed that they needed to care for one another. They believed that they should, as best they could, share in their temporal goods with those who had need and even those beyond just their brotherhood, but the people round about them. In fact, the account was given of one 
man who was in prison for his faith and was accused and sentenced to death. And the man who was to be his executioner, when he found out who was to be sentenced to death and who he was supposed to kill, he said, well, I can't, I can't kill this man because he fed my family when we were hungry. And for a long time he, he refused to do it. And many other testimonies such as that where these people join themselves with the people of God who believed in good works and in a life of righteousness. Now, let's go back to our passage here in Revelation chapter 3. Right after the the statement there, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. And we talked about that, and I think we have an understanding that there has to be more than just a name. There has to be a reason, there has to be something good that we identify with. And if we see what these people identified as some of the core issues of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church of God, what, what is a church, and how should it look. And they had to hold to that and give their very lives for it. But in verse 2, he says this. He says, be watchful. And if there's one thing that the Anabaptist people of their day believed in, that was that it requires of Christians to be watchful. We can't just live a careless life that goes along with the flow of what everyone else does. We have to be willing to identify what it is that pleases God and what it is that does not please God. And they looked to the word of God. And they were even bold enough to say when it was said that the church or the, the, the town council would decide on a matter of faith, they said the, the town council does not decide. The, church, the, the word of God has already decided. Be watchful. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. They believed that the church of God is watchful. And they believed that this watchfulness would have everyone earnest about this matter of having their works perfect before God. Now we can look back through history and we can see that most churches, including these here in Revelation, there was a time when there were things that were not perfect before God. Is it possible that that's true here at Zion Christian Fellowship? I think we need to be earnest about watchful. Lest some of our works be found not perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. And what is he referring to there? He's referring to the teachings, the instructions that they had received, and yea, even the word of God that was to be their guide and their direction for life. And he says, and repent. Repentance was so much emphasized in the Anabaptist day. 
You must be born again. You must repent of having gone your way and the way of the flesh and the way of the world. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. They believed that the true church was watchful and made a diligent effort to keep their garments white, to keep their garments unspotted from the world. And that it was not just a passing thing, nor something to be scoffed at, but that is what identified them as the true church. And if you did not adhere to that, you were only deceiving yourself. And you would become spots in the feast of charity. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. How about us here? Are we any different than the church at Sardis? Not really. It's very possible that there be some among us who have kept their garments and have not defiled them. And we'd like to think that could be everyone. But according to this passage, the reality or what's implied is that there would be some who did not keep their garments and that allowed their garments to be defiled. Well, I think I must close. It took a bit longer than I expected, but we haven't really even told the half. But I do think, at least in what we covered this morning, even though you may still not have a real clear grasp of the Anabaptist history, yet just understand that there were some core beliefs that they championed and God brought a, an enormous revival in that day and in that land. And we are still reaping many benefits from it. But it's incumbent upon us to be watchful, to strengthen the things that remain. We can't just have a name that we live but are dead. There has to be some reality. There has to be an embracing of the very truths that they embraced that we might choose a good name and that we, even beyond the name, is that we adorn the doctrine of God. May the Lord bless with that.